Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. Let's just pray and just focus, because God's going to do some amazing things in this church and amongst you and amongst me and, and, our, and what we do here. So God, we thank you for the start of 2015. We thank you, God, that there are so many nationalities represented in the room and that, God, you brought people from all different places to be in your presence this morning in this place. And Lord, we know that when you are in the midst, Lord, things change. And we know that, Lord, this morning, as we look at your word, things will change in the lives of people. Lord, in this service and the service that will follow. And Lord, we're so excited that, that we can pray to a God who hears. Not only do you hear, you actually do things about what we pray about. And we thank you, God, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today's exciting. It's the start of a new series in a new year. And it's, uh, we've shortened the title to, can I, well, better life. But can I have a better life? Can I have a better life? Um, who would like... <laughs> A better life. Anybody? Well, I know that you know there's many Christians, followers of Jesus in here, uh, but we want our life to improve, we want our lives to be better, and uh, we're going to, together with a number of the teachers in the church, we're going to talk about this theme over the next few weeks, and we're going to use one particular book of the Bible to do that. We're going to use the book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is a, a truly amazing book, because it, it, it's, a, it's a full-on book of romance, but it's, it's, uh, it's a full-on book of challenge. It's a full-on book of courage. It's a full-on book of, of in fact, it's a, the Bible talks about it as being a, well, we know of it as being a type of the life of Christ and what God has done for humanity, which the whole book is a narrative. It's not a long book. It's a short book. But it's a narrative of what God has done for all of humanity. And so as we explore it, some really exciting things will come out of it. It will challenge you. It will challenge us. And God will speak to us. If you want God to speak to you today, you may be sitting there thinking, if only God would speak to me. <laughs> you may be thinking that. You may be thinking, this Sunday, I need God to speak to me. Open your thinking to think about what God is saying through the Scriptures this morning. He will speak to you. He will. He will speak to you this morning. Um, check it, weigh it up and balance it up and God will speak to you. So as we look at this, um, this topic, this number one in the series of better, having a better, how can I have a better life? My title is initiating change, initiating change. Um, how do we initiate change and what are the consequences of change? And uh, we'll look at this through the eyes of, uh, of this story in the book of Ruth. Um, but before I do, who can remember a film called March of the Penguins? <coughs> One person, two people, three people. It sounds like a few people. Let me, for those who can't remember, it probably helps me because then I can summarise it briefly. It's about emperor penguins um, and they, each year... Uh, they, well, when they mate, they come out of the ocean and they cross uh, really severe um, conditions, icy conditions, um, and they, they walk across the ice cap and they, they march in blizzards, raging storms, and you see them, well, I, I've never seen them, but if you had been there, you'd see them sort of marching virtually in single file, and they march to the place where they mate and the place where they breed, and it's miles from the sea. And they do this in sort of minus 50 degree temperatures. It's unbelievably cold, driving wind, horrific. Nothing survives in that area at that time of year. It's so icy and cold. And yet they do it. They instinctively know where to go. And what do they do? They're monogamous. One man, one woman, and together they mate. 
and they have a child, a baby penguin, a baby uh, emperor penguin. And that penguin's born as an egg, and then the father will stand there with the egg on his feet. Um, and remember, it's taken them a quite a long time to get from the sea, and they haven't eaten since they left the sea. So they've taken a long time, even you know, weeks maybe, to get to this point. Certainly more than a few days, but it's taken a long time to get there. And this baby is born, this egg, and the father penguin, with his big feet, he has that egg, and he just settles down and just keeps that egg warm and keeps that egg alive. Um, and if he drops that egg onto the ice, it will die. That's it. And he has to do it, and he has to stay still. And I think they just kind of do this a little bit, a bit like some of the way you, some of you dance. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and uh, Anyway, that's another story. But anyway, so, so, but he has to stay there, and he can't move very far. And they, all these emperor men, the, the penguin men, they all kind of congregate and try and keep each other warm against the elements. And it's a story of courage and courtship. You know, the guys have to dance actually for the they and before they mate. And there's a whole ritual attached to it. But there's a whole other courage and courtship that takes place. And in some ways, it's a bit like our story today. Uh, and this whole theme of this um, having a better life. You know, figuring out what it is and who we are and where we're going and what's our purpose. All those kind of things come into the mix. And, you know, what's amazing about these emperor penguins is that the, the, the mum penguin will have to go and get the food. So she goes trucking off through all the blizzards, leaves the dad behind, goes to the sea to get some fish to bring it all the way back. And she may never come back. She may be eaten by a seal. And that dad is staying there, committed to the one, hoping that she'll return with some food. And if she doesn't, He'll die, and the baby will die. And it's all about putting your trust in something out there that's outside of yourself. And, and uh, it's, a, you know, it's an incredible story, and it'd be good to see it sometime. But, and then they swap over, and then he swaps the egg and puts it onto her feet, and then he goes off and gets the food. There's a, there's a shared partnership in it, and uh, it's an extraordinary story. The, Ruth, uh, the story of Ruth, this book, is the two principal characters are Ruth and Boaz. And we're not really going to get into them today too much because this is more of an introduction. But Ruth and Boaz, it's about a distressed woman and a man who is a hero. There are not enough hero men in this world, I'm telling you. There's a lot of selfish men and there's not enough heroes. And this hero, Boaz, we'll read about it as we go forward in this book. And we'll look at how they connected together, how God brought them together. But it's not just about that. It's how God navigates lives and how God moves people forward into purpose. It's a fantastic book. And the whole thing parallels God's love for humanity. And he makes it so real that you can tangibly feel the conversations and listen to the conversations that happen to these people on their journey. It's a story of incredible restoration, a repair job in a divine way, how God leads things and makes things happen, how God navigates us and takes us through tough times and brings us to his place but he doesn't do it instantly, he does it through a process. And so we'll be exploring that. You know, it's extraordinary. Um, the Bible makes it very, very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says, all have sinned. And you know that, I know that. Even people who deny the theory of sin, they know that people do things that are wrong. Let's just be real about it. Um, sin is a thing that's destroying the world. Um, but there is no other way to overcome the sins of this world except through Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Where can you get sins forgiven? Nowhere. You can't get sins forgiven anywhere but Jesus Christ. Uh, how do you get to heaven? You can't get to heaven through any other route but Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says, and we believe that. And so when we read the book of Ruth, and as we go through it, 
we'll be understanding the great love that God has got for us and how precious that is to us, just like that egg and the emperor penguins in the story. It's about um, a proposal, a bride and a groom. There's a picture there of Jesus and the church. It's a very masculine, powerful, um, appropriate uh, strength, a male um, decision to do something sacrificial. And that we'll be looking at that. Jesus, what he did, he did as an incredible personal sacrifice. He suffered an appalling death on the cross. Why? Because God loves us. That's what the, the Bible is about. It's not about coming to church, being religious, doing rules. And if you're three Hail Marys and you're forgiven, it's, it's not about that. It's about realising that God loves this world so much. He loves the people that whosoever believes in him won't die, but they'll have eternal life. That's what we believe. And that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus um, stood for. He stood for salvation. He is salvation. And so we'll be looking at that. It's about God's judgment, strangely enough. The book of Ruth has, it talks about this evidence of God's judgment. And so often we don't want to think of a, of a God that actually judges people. That's beyond human rights. That can't be right. You know, that, that's not politically. How can there be a, somebody who judges me? Most of the politically correct issues in life, because you, you or I are really concerned about someone else's opinions about what you do. And so many political correct opinions come out of people's own views that, they, they have every right to do what they want to do. But actually the truth is, there is a God who does judge what people do. And that's why Jesus' death and resurrection is so important to us. And we celebrated that this morning with, with communion. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just extraordinary. So as we look at this, we'll be examining things. We'll be seeing that God does judge people. He judges situations. You can't escape it. Um, even as New Testament believers who are born again by the Spirit of God, God's judgment still operates in this world. There is an ultimate judgment of this world and all mankind. And when we stand, every individual will stand before God and be accountable for what they've done. Even under the New Testament covenant, there will be an accountability for what we have done with what God has given us. You know, God sees everything we do, but it's not legalism, it's about grace. It's about God repairing the damage that gets done to each other, through each other, in the world, and the damage that's caused in the spiritual kingdoms as well. You know, that fight and wage war over the people of this earth. That's where those wars take place. So, this story, and I'll just give you a synopsis of it, it starts off with a man and a woman who leave a place called Bethlehem, and they move to a country or a place called Moab. And it's only 50 miles away across the Dead Sea. So if we were looking at a map, you'd see they move from Bethlehem in Judah. They take a boat across the Dead Sea. And then they go to Moab on the, on the right-hand side, the east side. That's it. That's where they went. So it's this family of four. It sounds like a very modern sort of family. A family of four. The husband's name was Elimelech. The wife's name is Naomi. And they had two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And we'll pick them up in a moment as part of this. The sad thing is that the men in this family all die very early on in the story, which is a really tough thing to have happen in your life, but it's a reality that happened to this family. What's interesting as well is the first part of the book of Ruth sets the scene, and then as we move forward, and this will start to happen next week, we'll get into the dialogue of what happens between the people. So the the writer of Ruth um, sets a scene and then deliberately allows us to go into the dialogue that takes place. Why is that? It's because God's relationship with humanity is very personal. 
It's not just setting a scene. It's not just a story and a horizon and, and the sun shone, the birds chirped and something happened. It's about the dialogue that happens between people and between us and God. There is a dialogue, a very real dialogue. That's why we believe in prayer so much because prayer is dialogue with God and God hears us, God responds to that and he does things about what we pray. In fact, he, it says that we don't know how to pray but he shows us how to pray. So in fact, God's leading us even in our times of prayer. Even when it feels like you don't know what to do, God will lead you through that. It's an exciting time. Um, Just to let you know, if you don't know what the Old Testament is, the the Old Testament is the first part of the Bible. It's the first, uh, it's a collection of 39 books written by different authors and they cover different topics. Some are history, some are prophecy and some are poetry. Um, So that's broadly the spread. And Ruth sits in there And it's part of the history side of the Old Testament. So when we look at it, uh, and we know that the book of Ruth was written around about 1,100 years before Christ. And it was during a time when the judges ruled in Israel. And we'll pick up the first few verses of this book. Um, So Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 in the New Living. It says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came across the land. So a man from Bethlehem, Incidentally, Bethlehem in Scripture, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. It's a place where there's food. So there's a severe famine on the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech. And by the way, the name Elimelech means my God is king. So his name had a meaning. Some of the other names don't really have concrete meanings, but in his case, it does. My God is king. That's what Elimelech means. And his wife was Naomi. That means pleasant. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites, uh, which is a clan from Bethlehem, which is a city in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Verse 3, then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. That's where Ruth comes in. But about ten years later, both Marlon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So, it's interesting. Who can remember Mikhail Gorbachev, the former Russian president? He once said Jesus was the first socialist. You'd expect that from a Russian. Uh, But the first to seek a better life for mankind. The first to seek a better life for mankind. Isn't that interesting? Gorbachev said that in the days of Glasnost. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. I think that's quite insightful, if you want my honest view. Our first point then this morning is that initiating change happens when, first point, we're driven by desire. Driven by desire. In the case of Ruth, Right at the beginning, a severe famine, this is in verse 1, a severe famine came across the land, so a man from Bethlehem and Jew left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking with him his wife and two sons. When we read about famines in the Old Testament, there is a lot of weight behind that description, famine. And most of the commentators, and I've read a lot of them on this topic, would tell you that in this case, famine undoubtedly implied there was a spiritual problem in Israel. There was a lack of God-centric focus. There was, um, it's a spiritual indicator. God in the Old Testament, because remember we talked about judgment earlier on, God's judgment operated very harshly in the Old Testament. 
It's only when you come to the New Testament, the collection of books in the New Testament, that we realise that God has this incredible love for humanity and his grace and giving us Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, covers the sin that we are ultimately would be judged for. So God's righteousness um, brings judgment at times. And in the Old Testament, his judgment was visibly seen in the lives of people and situations. So a severe famine came upon the land. This is the land of Judah in Israel, the land of Judah. And it particularly affected Bethlehem. So what was going on? Well, it says to me that the people were deliberately not drawing close to God. And this famine drove a desire, and the desire was for food. How does this parallel our lives? The reality is we all develop desires in our lives. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances, desires will form in your life. You'll either be driven because of a problem or because of an opportunity will drive desires in your life. In fact, desires can be so powerful, it can lead you into places that you never expected to be, in fact, you probably shouldn't be. So desires are things that we've got to get under, under control, driven by desire. One thing that struck me really strongly, even though this is called Ruth, this book, the first personality in this book caused the biggest challenge in the whole book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth. It's incredible. Elimelech is the father married to Naomi and they're living in God's, the play in, in Old Testament times, people viewed God as being in a certain location. He was geographically linked. So they, they considered God as being at the temple. God was in Jerusalem with his people. So this is the land where, in theory, God was present and yet there was a famine. Why? Because really God was present in name only not in terms of their relationship with him. There was no, no real relationship. But what did the father do? He did what a lot of men do, and he, he didn't take proper responsibility for his family. Right? This is where we've got to talk turkey. This man was irresponsible in dealing with his family. He led his family to the easiest possible solution, but the worst possible solution for his family. And men, if you are leading your families right, you can take your families into an absolute disaster zone and not even realise it until it's too late. He should never have done what he did. He took his family to a country that had historical issues with Israel. He took his family where God had told them not to go. He took his family away from where the presence of God should have been visibly tangible. And you can do that, men. You've got the ability to lead your families into destruction. You've got the ability to lead your families into disaster. You've got the ability to take your families into an incredibly dangerous place just because you've made a decision you think you're right. But what you've not done is gone to God first. Why did we set our spiritual disciplines or our disciplines last year, our, our values, should I say, dedicated where our, our values, our spiritual disciplines and our, our primary focus on God um, is exactly where we put our values last year when we talked about them. Why? Because if we take our eyes off what God is doing and where God is present, you could get yourself, even though you are godly, in the wrong place. And that's exactly what happened here. That's exactly what happened here. He took his wife and his, his two sons into a situation he shouldn't have gone. And it really was a bad thing. Um, you know, there's a parallel here in Ruth about with Abraham who went to Egypt. But Abraham went as a godly man, Elimelech went 
as a guy who basically walked away from God. Why? He used the excuse of famine to go do whatever he felt like doing. Now you might say, well actually lack of food is such an important thing, you'd go anywhere. That's not how it works with God. You don't go anywhere, you go where God says. That's what you do. And men, if you're leading your homes, you go where God says. You don't go where you think you need to go because of some other excuse. You go only where God says. You go and you need to know what God is saying. And if you don't know, then don't lead. Don't lead in the wrong direction. It's better to stay put until you do know. Don't be making decisions based on your own emotional or inner desires that are not valid. So where did the other Israelites go? We don't read of any other Israelites going to Moab. There's a reason for that. In Deuteronomy it says, if you people will repent, the famine will be lifted. So the people understood it, that actually they could change the, the climate and the, the supply and every, by changing themselves. If they change themselves, God would provide. And that's a reflection on us. If we change ourselves, God provides. Why? Because that's just what he does. When we humble ourselves before God, that's what the Bible says, if we humble ourselves before him, he, he lifts us up. When we, but you know, you can be as quiet as a church mouse and be completely disobedient. You can be. You can be like an silent assassin. You can be. You can, you can be you know, like, I don't do anything wrong, but actually you are an absolute disaster because firstly you're not leading or you're not leading right. And, but God says you've got to lead right. If my people will repent, the famine will be lifted, it talks about in Deuteronomy. So they knew it. In uh, Proverbs 27.20, it says, just, in de- just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. Your human desires will dominate your life unless you get them under control. It just feels like the right thing to do. Or y- you can go, you can, you'll end up in a mess if you just allow your desires, justified by, by your own motives, to lead you into places that you shouldn't be. But God has got a different plan. Moses even said that Moabites were not permitted to enter the Lord's assembly. It says in Deuteronomy 23, you can go look it up in your own time. These Moabites were not permitted for ten generations to even meet with uh, the Israelites in assembly. Why was that? Because of where the Moabites had come from. Do you know the story behind the Moabites? Possibly not. Do you know who Moab was? They're called Moabites because of Moab. Moab was a real man who lived. Do you know that Moab was Lot's son? Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? When God rained his judgment on Sodom and Lot left, wife turned to a pillar of stone, two daughters. They wanted to have children of their own. They had desires for children. There's the eldest daughter and the youngest daughter. What did they do? They decided to not be godly. They decided to take matters into their own hands. So they both got their dad drunk and both got pregnant by their father. And Moab was the product of one of those pregnancies. And that's why it was despicable before God. It was despicable because that desire was out of control. It was, I can fix it myself. You cannot fix some things yourselves. God deliberately brings us into accountability before him so that he can lead us. My sheep hear my voice. The whole point of being a follower of Jesus is that we follow him. (laughs) Not that we follow somebody else, it's that we follow him. And men, there's a huge responsibility on you to know what God is saying to you and he will speak to you. And if you haven't heard God speak to you for a long time, I suggest you get yourself to the prayer meeting on Wednesday and you take seriously the week of prayer and fasting because God needs to get through to you to lead your families or you'll lead your families into a bad place. You need to do that. So this is an important thing. So Moab had this origin that came out of a desire that was was well motivated but 
ungodly in its execution. Ungodly in its execution. The Moabites worshipped pagan gods. They were actively worshipping pagans. And one of their principal gods was Molech. And you may know of who Molech was. He was a god that demanded child sacrifice. And they burnt children on fires. Um, even the New Testament picture of hell, um, Gehenna, comes from where the Moabites used to, well, they used to sacrifice children on fire outside of Jerusalem. And Gehenna was a valley where that took place. I mean, that's a picture of hell. So what did this guy do? For the sake of food, he took his family into hell as a picture. There's a metaphor there. Why? Because the excuse was that we need food. We need food. But clueless, hang on, God's the one who provides the food. And you're going to take your family into hell to feed them. Either you're clueless or you have no idea who God is. But you can take your family into hell by not knowing what God's saying to you. It's incredibly powerful. This is so important. So the Moabites had this worshipping culture. The Moabites were historically Israel's enemy because of this. God warned them, not to, Israelites, not to intermarry with anybody outside of their nation. Why? Because of the pressures of these other gods. And what does it say in Psalm 37 verse 4? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Look at the difference. Letting your desires overrule and following your, I need my excuse to go somewhere, which breaks all the principles that you know about, You could take yourself into a terrible situation, but delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So if you are driven by desire, the first key thing is reset your desires and set your desires after God. Bring yourself into his presence. Bring yourself into his situation. What are people looking for today? People don't look to God for the answers. They don't. If you speak to people where you work and where you're at college with, they'll give you all sorts of opinions. They'll, they'll lead you a merry dance. They will not give you God's word. They will give you their opinions. And if you allow your opinions to be swayed by people you meet, people you associate with, who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, who don't know who God really is, you'll find yourself being tempted to go in directions that have nothing but bad for you. It may just be the case. Um, you know, these days, what are people looking for? They're looking for things that satisfy them. They're hungry to meet personal needs, not just food. In Britain, we don't have famine as such. You know, there are people who don't have much, but there's access to food in Britain. We're not in a country that's rife with famine. People are typically presented with somewhat selfish needs, personal needs. In fact, the reason we called the title, um, the title it is for this series was because we know that people want stuff. People are quite selfish in their demands. People, people want selfishly their own things. They're not even needs anymore. I mean, I don't know about you, but Christmas, lots of presents kicking around, chocolates and other stuff. And I'm actually thinking, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't need half of this stuff. Why do I need all these gifts and presents? And you're grateful for them because they're, they're, they're signs of other people's love for you and, and you appreciate them, you like giving bread. But actually, do we need them? The answer is, no, we don't. We just do it to show our care for people and our appreciation and love for people. But, you know, we form needs all the time. I thought about buying a, a drill, you know, a boy's toy over Christmas. I was really inspired. I thought I'd buy myself one of these, these drills and I saw you could get an even better deal. you get 40% off if you bought two drills. 
And then I found out you could buy two drills and three power supplies. I tell you, I was that close to buying two drills and three power supplies. I didn't need any of that. Why? Because you start to let a desire for something just take you in. You know, I must have spent two or three hours looking online to Screwfix and all these places, the best prices for, uh, you know, chargeable drills and power. I'm thinking, I don't need any of this stuff. Just stop all that. It's a ridiculous waste of time. You know, but people are motivated by the most ridiculous things which waste our time. And you know what? Sometimes our needs are so powerful and they're so built into us that we will allow them to dominate the needs of those that we're responsible for. So men, responsible for our wives and children. But we can allow those needs that we've got of who you are, your identity, your self-esteem, your value, to so dominate you that you will control your family to make you feel good. You can do that. I know men who do that. I'm a man. I've lived around a lot of men in my life. I've worked in very competitive situations in sport and uh, in business. And I've travelled the world and I've met men in different cultures and different continents and been responsible for teams in different parts of the world. And I can tell you I've seen all spectrum of men who manipulate and control things because they've got unsatisfied needs that have got out of control. Their desires have run rampant and they've destroyed the people in their lives to get to what they want. Why? Because they're empowered to do so and no one else is going to stop them because their desires are most important. So we've got to get our desires under control. If we want a better life, we've got to get those desires, God-given sometimes, under control. And don't use excuses to lead us into places of destruction. We've got to watch out for it. Um, you know, sometimes children are an excuse for our own agendas. You know, my children need... I read something about Brad Pitt recently. My father wanted to give us more opportunity than he had he wanted to give us a better shot at a better life. Now, Brad Pitt has had quite a turbulent relationship life, uh, and I'm not saying his father or parents were bad in any way, but it's interesting that he made the point that his parents were trying to give him a better life, and so they did certain things. And so often, you know, men will do things and will use the excuse, I'm only doing it to give my kids a better future. I'm only doing this to give my kids a better future. I'm only giving, doing that. And what is this and that? It's longer hours at work. It's more... It's more self-obsessed time, it's more recluse time, it's, it's not talking. It's, it's all those things that we can do so easily. What we're really doing is we've got broken characters and actually we're using the excuse of responsibility to give ourselves an excuse to go do whatever we feel like doing. Actually, we've got to be accountable. Men, we are accountable. God wants us to be accountable to each other and to him. So we've got to get our desires under control. You know, I, I, I'm going to say with some care about a family member who... Uh, is working in a very, very interesting situation in the Middle East. Uh, a family member works for a royal family in the Middle East um, in the childcare space. And that family are billionaires. Billionaires. I mean, super. I mean, off the scale. They've got their own runway. They've got their own multiple aircraft. When they come to London, they come by jumbo. And they land at the Queen's Terminal at Heathrow. And when they get off the plane... They have their stretch limos lined up. They come off. There's no passport control, by the way. It's straight into the limos, straight into a whole set of locations. And, uh, you know, finance is not a problem, let me tell you. And this family member who is working in that world is realising this life is not much fun. It's not much fun. You know, gold taps, marble sinks, you know, opulence beyond your imagination. I mean, super, super super, super opulent with a capital S. I mean, most people in this room wouldn't even be able to get close to even 
thinking about the wealth that is in that environment. And I'm talking super rich. Um, and when in conversation with this person recently, found out total frustration, total disappointment, total, you know, I need to reset things. It's not working for me. You can, you can touch the gold. You can turn the taps on. You, can, you, you know, the, the, the carpets, worth a fortune, drivers, limos, wealth. I'm telling you, being in that environment, difficult, difficult, looking for an alternative. Why wants a better life? Can you believe it? Wants out of that. Why does the person want out of that? Because, it's, because actually it means nothing ultimately. And yet so many of the people around us seem to aspire to having more stuff, want more stuff. But ultimately having stuff doesn't fulfill desire. A better life is knowing what you're on this planet for and who God really is. Otherwise you are chasing after the wind because it can be gone tomorrow. So second key point, um, when we are on this journey of initiating change, you can be damaged by the unexpected. Damaged by the unexpected. And what's the remedy to being damaged by the unexpected? It's recognising the source of strength. It's recognising the source of strength. If you're, the first point was if you're driven by a desire, you've got to reset your desires. Second point, you're damaged by the unexpected, you need to recognise the source of strength. Ruth 1, verse 2, it says, They were from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. They settled there. That's what screamed out at me in the last few weeks I was preparing this. They settled there. They settled there. They were so blasé about who God is and, and who, what they're, who they were, they settled there. Now, I'm taking license here. They settled for hell rather than heaven. Can you believe that? They settled there. They settled there. That means they, they put down their roots there. That means they bought a house. They brought some sheep, whatever it would be. Whatever was settling in their terminology is what they did. They settled there. You know what? They got comfortable. They got comfortable in hell. <laughs> right? They made a bad decision and got comfortable in the place they shouldn't have been comfortable. As soon as you get too familiar with where you shouldn't be, you'll justify it to the point that you're numb to where you are. Never let yourself get numb. Allow your conscience. That's why in the New Testament it talks about our conscience guiding us and leading us. They settled there. They settled in a place away from God. You can settle there. You can know about God. You can know of him, but you can settle away. It was active unbelief. And what happened? They ended up being shaken. Remember I said God's judgment was shown through things like famine? Well, now what happens? Well, Naomi had two sons. And what happens? Her husband dies. Her husband dies. Just dies. We don't know any much more about it. He just dies. How does that happen? Because God's judgment is working against those that are against God. And they've settled there. Their excuse was to find food. They settled there. That means beyond the famine, they settled there. They were settled. They were settled. And he says, and then ten years later, ten years later, um, well, the sons got married. And who would have found the sons' wives? It would have been Naomi. Naomi, the mother now, is having to pick up the pieces from the father who led them into the wrong place. And she's now in a settled situation and finds husbands for her, wife, her, her daughters. Sorry, wives for her husbands. I'm switching it around. She now finds wives for the sons. She now finds wives for the sons. So she's going into the world that she's settled in looking for wives for the sons. It's just extraordinary. And what's her choice? She hasn't got 
Israelites to choose from, she's got Moabites to choose from. People who are caught up in that world. People are caught up in that world. It says in Romans 8 verse 6, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Look at the contrast. The life the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. In John 14, 27, it says, I am leaving you with a gift. This is what Jesus said. Peace of mind and peace of heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. This is an incredible verse. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so do not be troubled or afraid. What an extraordinary thing. Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift. Peace of mind and heart. Well, he's, uh, he's separating those two things. He's separating mind and heart. And so often we blur them together. Mind and heart, they sound like they could be the same thing. But he separates them. Why does Jesus separate them? And I was thinking about this. Well, shalom, um, the Jewish word shalom, it doesn't mean just peace. It means an absence of conflict and and peace. And in fact, it's not only absence of conflict, it's actually blessing added. So in the Hebrew world, if you say shalom, it doesn't mean just peace. It means God's blessing. It's a, it's a combination of a settled environment and blessing. And so when we talk about peace in the Bible, we're talking about not only absence of conflict and trouble, we're talking about God's blessing coming in. And Jesus said, I'm the one who will take away the conflict with the peace that I give, but I'll also bring a blessing with the peace I give. So then he talks about splitting the heart and the mind. Well, the mind and the heart. When you think of mind, you know, so often if you are living away from God, you've got to live on your wits. You've got to live knowing everything. You've got knowledge is power, knowledge is king. You, you feel like you've got to know everything. You want to know everything. And you can tell someone who's, who's going a little bit off the rails, they start to want to know everything about everything. They need to know everything. Why? Because they're uncertain about things. They need to know everything. And why do they need to know everything? Because they need to be able to solve everything. <laughs> because if they can't solve it, they're not in control. And if they're not in control, there's a problem. So peace of mind means you don't need to know everything. And you don't need to solve everything. Because Jesus said, in my presence there is fullness of joy. That's what God says. Peace of heart speaks of love. The heart speaks of love. And peace of heart to me speaks of love. It means you don't need to fear betrayal. And when there's no peace of heart, you fear betrayal because love is pulled out of your life. You feel like someone's going to let you down. You feel like you're going to be betrayed. So peace of mind and peace of heart. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. You can't go to Moab to find the peace of God. You've got to go to God to find the peace of God. Proverbs 14, 30, the first part says, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. <laughs> now that's what we could all do with hearing after Christmas. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. You know, hope is about possibility and not probability. Hope is all about what could be, not a certainty of what you will have. So we need to recognise our true source of strength. Damaged by the unexpected means recognising the, the true source of strength. When we were away over New Year, we went up to the Cotswolds, just for a, a little time. We were very close to the Cotswolds. And we went to a gallery by a guy called, uh, owned by a guy called Tony Hayes, Haynes. And he owned a number of galleries uh, in various parts of the world, some, one in America and other places. And, um, 
And we were amazed to find he, he owned four and a half thousand paintings, is that right? And uh, he said something that really struck me, in fact struck us all. His father had been a, um, a dealer, an art dealer. And he clearly is a very capable art dealer. And he had paintings in his studio that were worth a fortune. There was one just on the, low, on the ground floor that was worth over a quarter of a million. And then upstairs was the really expensive stuff. I'm thinking that's a lot of paintings. Um, amazing. So he's got hundreds of thousands, there I say millions of pounds worth of product, uh, paintings. And he, he, he started to chat to us as we were looking at these paintings. And uh, he said his dad taught him a lesson. He said, you need to be able to know who painted the picture without looking at the name. He said, if you look at the name, names can be forged. He said, the person who really painted is written all over the painting. He said, that's when you know who painted the picture. He said, writing a name on a picture is the easiest thing in the world. You know, calling yourself a Christian is the easiest thing in the world. What you painted on your canvas will tell the world who you really are. Right? What's written on your canvas? As we go into 2015, what is written on your canvas? You may have the name Christian, or you may have churchgoer, or religious, but actually, what have you written all over your canvas? What's on there? What's written on there? Final point. Final point. If we're initiating change, we need to be determined to have a better life. <laughs> we need to be. And many of you are determined to improve your life, to, to make things. So what do we do? We refocus our direction. We refocus our direction. In Ruth 1, verses 6 and 7, Naomi decides to return. She's had enough of this. She's now in control. She's responsible for this family. The two sons have since died. The husband's died. He's, she's now left with, with two daughters-in-law. And it says in verse 6, Then Naomi heard in Moab, so I'm not saying it was hell, but let's just call it hell for the time <laughs> Naomi heard in hell that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them crops again. See what I mean? It was a sign of God's judgment and blessing. Food was a provision, and she understood it. She knew, so did her husband, that the lack of crops, the lack of food, was an indication of God's disappointment with the people. But God's blessing on the people brought them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where they had been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. They took the road that would lead them back. They took the road that would lead them back to God. They took the road that would get them back into God's presence. That's what they decided to do. They realised they'd gone round. You know, those sons um, who'd married local mobile women, they never had children in those ten years. It's amazing. It's, all of this is a sign that God was not with what they were doing, and yet they lived there for so long. You can be living in the, the wrong place spiritually and completely missing God's presence. And what God says is, come back into my presence. That's where the blessing and that's where the peace is. That's where the blessing and the, that's where the peace is. It's not about geography, it's about proximity. It's not about whether you're here whether you're in a church down the road, it's your proximity to God that's all important. It's not about the building you come into. It's about who you are, what's written on your canvas, and what's your proximity to God. It's not about geography. But in this case, the example was geography. They heard about God, that he was blessing the people, and they started the journey back to him. And that brings me to the end of this morning's breach. Where are we going to 
move ourselves forward to. This year is an incredible year and an opportunity for the church full stop. Initiating change is just the beginning. This could be an amazing year. But for each of us personally, there are things that we need to set in place. There are things that we need to set in place. There are things that we need to just reset. So if we're driven by desire, reset your desires. Make sure those desires are submitted to God in what you're doing. That was the first point. Second point, you can be damaged by the unexpected but recognise your source of strength. Recognise the source of strength, because that source of strength will move you out of those problems. And thirdly, be determined to have a better life. And to do that, we've got to refocus our direction.